G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Christine Organ, um, a Christian journalist, once put it this way in a magazine. She said, it's easy to come up with reasons to not go to church. There are so many, she said. Sleep, although not so much this morning, right? Because we've got an extra hour anyway, so that's not our... Anyway, sleep, she said, football, birthday parties, errands, theological differences, hypocritical church leaders, spiritual doubts. You want an excuse not to go? It shouldn't be hard to find one. Um, So today, brothers and sisters, especially on that John 17 passage, we're going to be talking about unity unity among believers. I think unity naturally gets us thinking about church. Uh, It's an obvious one for us as Christians. If we're going to think about Christian unity, we think about where we express that. Uh, It gets us thinking about church and it gets us thinking about whether or not to come along and whether and why she or he isn't here and how long it's been since we've seen so-and-so at church. Is he even a Christian anymore? I don't even know. Wait, but do you even have to go to church to be a Christian? All of these sorts of questions bubble up when you're thinking about unity as Christians. Perhaps unity gets us thinking about the reasons that we've heard from our friends, uh, our children even, or our um, uh, spouse perhaps, why they don't come to church anymore. Uh, I don't go to church because it's no longer a priority for me, Dad. I've got better things to do now on a Sunday morning. I don't go to church because, well, I don't have to. There's no law that says that I've got to, is there? I don't go to church because, well, look, if I'm honest, I don't get that much out of it. It's basically a waste of my time. I've heard it all before. I just don't need it. I don't go to church because my life doesn't have room for a thing like church right now. I'm just too busy. I don't go to church because, well, I'm on shift on Sundays, so I physically can't be there as much as I'd like to be. All sorts of reasons, aren't there? Perhaps we've heard some of those. Unity gets us thinking about church. More broadly, I think on a different note, unity gets us thinking about those bigger expressions of unity, those structures and questions like, why on earth are there so many different denominations of churches? That level of unity. Um, what does Jesus think about all of the denominations? Baptist this and Reform that and Anglicans over there and Presbyterians down the road. A church split here, a church plant there, but hang on a sec, why should there be more churches anyway? Uh, aren't we aiming for unity and togetherness? Shouldn't combining churches be what we're doing, do you see? Unity gets us thinking about all sorts of different issues. Folks, as we come to this closing bit of Jesus' prayer uh, that we're up to in John 17, on the night that he was betrayed, he broaches this topic of Christian unity. Now, I put it to us all today that Christ's vision for Christian unity, it shines so much more brightly, has so much more depth and breadth to it, that it really does eclipse lots of those little issues and quibbles and worries um, that we have. It, It puts them in a context that's so much more broad and deep, and it sets his agenda front and centre for what Christian unity is, what it's supposed to be about. But I think it goes a step further too, because I think it drafts for us, as a church, as individuals, even, yes, as a denomination, our marching orders. Um, 
for how we're supposed to express and live out our Christian unity, what we're even, even aiming for. So could I please pray now as we come to John 17 uh, and God's Word to us there. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we approach your throne in the name of Christ this morning to ask for your Spirit's work in and amongst us as we open up your Word to us today. Father God, we know and we trust that your intentions for us give us cause to hold out hope that we'd increasingly become like Jesus through meditation on who you are or you've done for us in Christ. God, we ask for that even now. Would you expand, please, and would you hone our appreciation of Christian unity along with everything else that's in this passage before us? Reshape, please our agenda here together and individually. Uh, reshape us, please, to bring greater glory to you, our God, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're right toward the end of uh, Jesus' prayer. If you're coming in um, just this week, we've been in a series in John's Gospel for some time. Um, could I invite you for a second, though, to see yourself in the first verse? It's a really interesting... Um, uh, little verse, I want you to see, I want us to see ourselves in that first verse there that's in front of us. Um, I think that's the intent of it being recorded here for us in God's Word, actually. Have a look with it. Have a look with me at John 17, verse 20. Please read it with me. My prayer, says Jesus to His Father, my prayer is not for them, that is the current disciples, the 11 men with Him in the garden there, my prayer is not for them alone, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, and we'll get on with that in just a moment. It's a prayer with you in mind, folks, that the Lord Jesus prayed to His Heavenly Father um, on the night that He was betrayed, and we're looking at right off the bat, before we get talking about the specifics of Christian unity and how all that works out, I just want to encourage us with this, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then have a listen to that, will you? Jesus prayed for you. My prayer is not for them, the current disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Um, nearly 500 years ago, John Calvin was really struck by this realisation and here's how he put it. He said, here indeed is a remarkable basis for confidence for if we believe in Christ through the teaching of the Gospel, we should not doubt at all that we are already gathered with the Apostles into His faithful protection, so that not one of us shall perish. This prayer of Christ, he says, is a calm haven, and whoever retreats into it is safe from all danger of shipwreck. It is as if Christ had taken a solemn oath that our salvation will be His care and study. That's nice, isn't it? It's a nice way to come to this uh, little section of Scripture. Can we take that assurance into the rest of this discussion? Because yes, this is a Scripture like any other, to be poured over, analysed, kind of um, uh, meditated on, figured out. But it's also a record of Jesus' prayer for you, brothers and sisters in the Lord. Uh, his prayer concerning your faith, your eventual salvation... That's a wonderful little prayer. I just wanted to point that out as we get into it. Anyway, we're going to tease out this, that all of them may be one, this theme of unity. Let's do it in three respects. I'll give them to you up front. 
Firstly, the basis or the standard of our unity. Uh, Why are we united? Uh, What does that unity even mean? Secondly, what does our unity do? That's where we're going with the function or the purpose or the outcomes of our Christian unity. That's secondly. And thirdly, lastly, the end of our unity. So let's keep reading then. Firstly, where does our unity come from? The standard of Christian unity, um, its basis. Verse 20, come with me there. My prayer, says Jesus, is not for them, the current disciples. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So let me ask you, by what standard are we supposed to gauge our Christian unity? What are we supposed to hold it up against? Can you tell me that from the passage? It's a rhetorical question, don't call it out. What's the touchstone? What's the measure of Christian unity. I think it's in verse 21, isn't it? Do take a look there, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Or further on in verse 22, that they may be one as we are one, says God the Son to God the Father. That, that's the, wait a second, the unity of God, in other words, the persons of the Trinity, Father, uh, Son, plus Spirit not mentioned here, the unity of God, that is the standard, the measure, the basis of our unity as believers. Folks, what does that even mean? Like, how do, how do we aspire to that? How do we measure against that? Um, how can I be one with you, O believer in the Lord, Uh, how can we be one with one another just as the Son is in the Father and the Father is in the Son? Now, let's just notice two quick things initially. Firstly, I think we do need to recognise this this is powerfully intense language, isn't it? Um, And let me just wonder out loud here with you for a moment, could it be that one of the things that we, at times, find a bit off-putting about church is that we have this powerful full-on, profound, intense kind of language about its significance, but then we don't know quite what to do with it, or it doesn't quite live up to the standard that we were hoping that it might. Okay, so I'm supposed to be intensely united with you all. Now what? Now there's just Sunday morning, and you know what I mean? It doesn't quite live up to that, even though it's got this um, amazing language surrounding it. And so church comes to ring a little bit hollow, or those denominational splits and schisms or biffos between churches come to seem all the more ugly against a backdrop like this. Because although we're not maybe sure quite what that unity does mean, we know that it's supposed to be intense and significant and profound and all of those sorts of things. So that's firstly. Secondly though, second thing, I actually think the passage here, I think Jesus within this prayer um, gives us a stack of clues about what he means by Christian unity. So let's take a look there, say in verse 20, uh, just with the question, who is Jesus even even praying for? He gives us a clue there. He prays for um, those who will believe in me through their message, through the Apostles' message. 
So, we have to be united, brothers and sisters, a measure of our unity will be the measure of um, the truth about Jesus that we've heard in the apostolic gospel. The one message from God, Father and Son. Verse 21, he nails that down a little bit more in terms of content, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So there's this shared conviction, this clarity about God that is supposed to unite us. We are supposed to share that together and what God has done, I take that that, um, that, um, that you have sent me is sort of a shorthand for the whole gospel message there, like in verse 23, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. All these shorthand ways of referring to the gospel of Jesus, that is what is supposed to unite us as Christians, shared conviction and clarity. Elsewhere in John's gospel, we have it more memorably, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. All different little shorthand ways of expressing what it is that unites us in terms of our convictions and the truth that we know from God and that unites us to God. Christian unity then is an intense and powerful bond born of the belief that God sent Jesus into the world to lovingly save sinners. So for Jesus, Christian unity is not in the first case about showing up to a church service on a Sunday morning, not especially, it's not about why are there so many denominations and should there even be, it's far more primal, can I say it's far more relational than that, it's sharing the truths about Jesus and all that God has done. Christians, this message binds our lives together and not only that, it binds our lives to God because it's truth from Him. So, uh, 17 verse 21, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. So, there's the basis or the the structure, the uh, standard of Christian unity. It leads to the second point, the function of our Christian unity the function, the purpose. What is our unity supposed to even do, supposed to even look like, supposed to even affect or create? Now, let me give you my summary here. It's this, Christian unity must shine so gloriously in our world that people will recognise in us the very Jesus who unites us. So, I'm trying to summarise everything that Jesus has said in that paragraph. Let me give it to you again. Christian unity must shine so gloriously in our world that people will recognise in us the very Jesus who unites us. A couple of questions. Firstly, is is that what the text is saying? I'll read it to you again in just a moment. Uh, But secondly, what then would that look like if we were to shine that gloriously in our Christian unity? Could we review those words again? So, verse 20, we'll pick it up from there again. My prayer is not for them alone, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved 
me. What do you reckon? Does that sound right? My summary from before, Christian unity must shine so gloriously in our world that people will recognise in us the very Jesus who unites us. Okay, then, well, what will that look like? How's that supposed to find expression in our lives together? Um, Because here's where I reckon we get all a little bit wonky, actually, uh, in figuring out the glory that we as Christians are supposed to show the world. Uh, My hunch is, and and certainly I'm, I'm sort of sharing my own heart here a little bit, the glory that I would like to show the world very often, the glory that I aspire to and enjoy and prize and applaud and crave and envy when I see it in others, I confess I think my version of glory does not mesh well with Christ's. Let's just have a think about that for a moment. um, uh, So, have a listen to um, these words from William Barclay. William Barclay. Uh, Please listen carefully to this, actually. He says, the cross was his glory. Jesus did not speak of being crucified. He spoke of being glorified. Therefore, says Barclay, first and foremost, a Christian's glory is the cross he must bear. It is an honour and glory to suffer for Jesus Christ. We must never think of our cross as a penalty. We must think of it as our glory. What do you think of that? Now, then he gives this illustration. He says, the heart of the task, a knight was given, right? A knight, sword, lance, armour, the whole thing, right? The heart of the task, a knight was given. The greater he considered the glory of it. The harder the task we give a student or a craftsman or a surgeon, the more we honour him. We, in effect, say that we believe that nobody but him could attempt that task at all. So, when it is hard to be a Christian, we must regard it as our glory, as our honour given to us by God. And he concludes, as with Christ, it is our glory when men see God in us. Now, I don't know about that business of nobody else could do it but that person, right? I'm not sure that nobody else could walk my particular Christian life or your particular Christian life by the Spirit of God and the power of God. Maybe I'm sure they could. But in the main, I reckon Barclay's right in terms of our aspirations and estimation of what glory ought to be about and Christ's. If we adopt Jesus' view of glory, our Lord who came to do the hardest thing, to die the harshest death, under the judgment and opposition of the world, yes, but under the judgment of God Himself for us. I mean, that is glorious. That is a glorious life. That is the glorious life that ever we've seen in this world. That's what we believe to be truly glorious, right? So verse 21, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, verse 22, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. Folks, what kind of glory is the world around us going to see in our little church? In Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, will they see a glory 
that would go to the cross to see them saved through the Lord Jesus. Are we so united in Father and Son, in their saving plans, in His intention to send Christ, in Christ's coming and death for the salvation of the world? Uh, Do we share His mind? Do those things, does that agenda excite us and impel us? Does it shine so brightly from us and in us and through us? You see, it's quite a captivating vision of what our life is to be about. Are we all out for the glory of Jesus here in Hobart? I think that's the measure of it. I think we should find ourselves compelled um, by that vision, but I think that will mean that we'll find ourselves asking questions like, well, are we seeing the world saved through the Gospel amongst us? Are we seeing conversions uh, to Christ amongst us? Are we striving for them? And when they dry up, well, what's gone wrong? Uh, what do we need to do differently or reappraise? Are there things that are getting in the way? What, what, can we figure out why? The unity is meant to be observable. Now, this is Don Carson. The unity is meant to be observable. It's not achieved by hunting enthusiastically for the lowest common theological denominator, but by common adherence to the apostolic gospel by love that is joyfully self-sacrificing, by undaunted commitment to the shared goals of the mission with which Jesus' followers have been charged, by self-conscious dependence on God Himself for life and fruitfulness. So lastly then, the end of our unity. We've looked at the basis, we've looked at the purpose, what about the end? And by which I mean the goal, uh, not, not as in the end, as in the shattering of Christian unity. The, no, the end, the goal, where we're going. Um, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the, the famous Baptist preacher from England in the 1800s, he once memorably put it like this, he said, if I had never joined a church until I'd found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it for it would not have been perfect, a perfect church after I'd become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, he says, it is the dearest place on earth to us. Folks, uh, Jesus goes on in this prayer to remind his listening disciples that, yes, while glory in this particular world, in this life, it has a certain shape, it has a certain cost, there is far more to come. So, would you take a look with me, please, at the following verses Jesus envisioning what lies ahead for His disciples with Him. Verse 24, Father, Father, I want those You've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory You've given me because You loved me before the creation of the world. Father, I want You to know, I want those You've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Folks, it's one thing to hear about Christ's glory, uh, to learn of it for the first time. Perhaps that's where some of us are up to, really getting a picture of just this glorious life that Jesus lived and what it displays of the character of God. Uh, It's another thing indeed to admire Christ's glory, to come to love and trust Him, to become a Christian It's another thing again 
to aspire to Christ's glory and character for your own life, that you would live a life so glorious as His, it's still another um, to actually imitate Christ, to have His glory become yours, the glory of the cross, but it is quite another thing again, and this is what Jesus sets before us here, it is another thing again to know that the day will come, brothers and sisters, where we get to experience His glory together with Him, to dwell in it, to behold it, to behold our Saviour face to face. The day's coming. It's a good day. It is one to look forward to. Without fear or worry or guilt or shame, with our imperfections and our self-absorption, with our phony self-glory all swept aside, with a proper and a right adoration of what is truly glorious, our God who came for us, who left glory for us, desires to share glory with us for all eternity. Do you realise that's why Jesus came? That's His love for us. Father, I want those You've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory You've given me, because You loved me before the creation of the world. Let's wrap up. Verse 25. Righteous Father, though the world does not know You, I know You. And they, the disciples, know that you have sent me. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. What did we start with? We started with, it's easy to come up with reasons not to go to church. Why? Because there are so many. Sleep and footy, birthday parties, errands, Theological differences, hypocritical church leaders, spiritual doubts. You want an excuse not to go, it shouldn't be hard to find one. See, the trouble with that approach, folks, is that it talks like we were the ones who invented church. It talks like we were the ones who invented Christian unity. Uh, That we invented it for our purposes, that church exists to meet our needs, serve our purposes, do our thing in the world. Yeah, if it's not doing a very good job at those things, well, footy or sleep, whatever, jobs around the house, business never sleeps, you know, all of those things suddenly look like a whole lot more attractive. It's not hard to find reasons to stay away. But friends, Jesus was the author and the designer of Christian unity. It marches to the beat of His drum, the drum of His glorious cross and for the salvation of the world. So must real Christians go to church to go back to that old conundrum? I don't know if I have the answer for that from this passage, do we? But I can sure say this, real Christians, by which I mean Christians plural, together, real Christians will show the gospel of Christ's cross to a watching world with an irrepressible desire to make Him known uh, in their unity together. And I can think of few better ways to do that than, at a minimum, showing up to church, but that is only the beginning, isn't it? How about we pray together? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we first, we praise you, our God as glorious. We know what life is all about when we look at the splendour of a Saviour who'd give it all up for us. Father, oh that we'd learn to prize his glory more deeply and more fully, to take on that kind of aspiration for ourselves rather than aspiring for much for ourselves or aspiring to make much of ourselves.
to aspire to make much of Christ. God, forgive us, please, and re-centre us together on the cause of Christ to our community around about us. Father, may we each consider soberly how that might look for us practically in day-to-day life, what new things we might need to learn or be willing to learn, what old habits we might need to change or old traditions, just personal traditions even, that need challenging uh, to make way for your agenda in our lives. Father, we pray for real and deep repentance and faith in light of our Jesus and leaning fully on Him. God in heaven, we ask for more. We pray that as Christ lives amongst us by His Spirit, that he'd be active in bringing many to salvation, uh, to sharing faith, that people would share faith in Jesus with us, along with the hope of glory to come. We pray, Father, to this end for the kids in Sunday school. Um, We pray with this in mind for the spouses of some of us, uh, the sons and daughters of some who have drifted away from church for whatever reason, Father. We pray this for our neighbours and our colleagues, our classmates, our besties. And Father, would you please do it soon? Use us as your children in, in your world to display your glory, a glory that our world so sorely needs. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.